Well, hello and welcome to this series about the Australian Charter of Healthcare Rights entitled Patient Power, Healthcare Rights and Positive Change. My name's Julie McCrossan. I'm a throat cancer survivor and a patient and family advocate. And this series is hosted by Health Consumers New South Wales and supported by the Australian Commission on Safety and Quality in Healthcare. And we're broadcasting from the land of the Gadigal people and I'd like to pay our respects uh, to Elders, past, present and emerging. Now, if this is all new to you, the Australian Charter of Healthcare Rights spells out our rights in relation to access, safety, respect, partnership, information, privacy and giving feedback to improve healthcare. And this series is all about encouraging you to learn more about the Charter and to use it to improve health services for you and your family, but also for the broader community. In this episode, we're talking about the purpose of the Charter and how people are using it or plan to use it to improve healthcare. So let's welcome our four guests. Christy Arfar is a mother of two from Brisbane. She supported her late husband, Lay, a Pacific Islander, during his treatment for pancreatic cancer. And she also supported Lay's parents during their health care. Shona Edwards is from Adelaide, a youth cancer and disability advocate and deputy chair of Cancer Voices SA. Dr Ben Bravery is a, a cancer survivor and a medical doctor and the author of a book called The Patient Doctor. And Nadine El Kaboot is a Muslim and Arabic community advocate and a youth advocate in southwest Sydney and also a cancer survivor. So welcome to all of you and thank you so much for being part of this. Shona, let me come to you first in Adelaide because I, I'm interested in your thoughts on the value uh, of this document, particularly because you know, you, you've had cancer, you've had treatment uh, with proton therapy internationally, but you're now facing shortly some very serious surgery. So I'm interested in how you're thinking about this charter while you're facing what you're facing now. Yeah, so I think for me, um, I feel very lucky because my parents are both scientists. So I think I intuitively knew when I was first diagnosed that I had some rights, particularly I think I resonate with the right to information and the right to partnership. Um, and I, I knew I could self-advocate and speak up and ask questions throughout my treatment. But I know through my um, experience as an advocate now, many young people don't necessarily know that they have these rights or they may be uncertain. So I think it not just for people who don't know that they have these rights, but for myself, seeing these rights explicitly can be really empowering to know it's not just okay to ask questions, it's not just appropriate, it's actually necessary to ask questions. Why is it important to be explicitly spelled out? Why does that matter? Well, I have to say for young people, I think sometimes we need a little extra reassurance and you could tell us once, but it can't hurt to tell us twice. Um, and in my experience as a disability advocate, uh, many young people with, who are neurodiverse um, might take instruction literally. Um, so they do need to be explicitly told that it's okay to ask questions because if the clinician they're dealing with doesn't bring it up, they're not going to consider it themselves. I should say you're in a, a peer support group, a disability organisation uh, at the University of Adelaide where you're a postgraduate student. So you're working as a peer mentor a lot of the time, aren't you? 
Tell us about partnership, the right to partnership, because that matters to you. Yeah, I see this a lot with young students in my work. And I think um, it's because we absolutely want to be polite and respectful, but uh, a barrier with partnership with our clinicians um, can be that I think we treat doctors a little bit like they're magical, um, but they're just people, right? And I think some people can be really hesitant to um, be disruptive um, and ask for information, ask questions, and particularly maybe asking for a second opinion on a diagnosis or a treatment. Um, so I think using the charter to explicitly say it's not just okay, it's your right, um, partnership being about open and honest communication, we can overcome that sense of um, anxiety that we might be troublemakers, might be upsetting the doctor. Um, and I think clinicians need to understand um, using this charter that it's a normal part of the process for something like seeking a second opinion. So um, and if I can give you my personal example, at the yeah. moment um, I'm facing a decision to go have a major surgery. So for the several years, my primary contact has been my radiation oncologist. Now I'm bringing in an orthopedic surgeon. So he's not replacing my radiation oncologist, he's widening my information and my team. Um, so there's absolutely, that's a normal part of the process for me. You're also getting a second opinion in another capital city. Uh, and just, just, just in a nutshell, what is that anxiety when you're reaching out beyond the doctors that you know? What, what's your fear? Well, I think we deal with enough uncertainty when you're facing a major um, treatment or a major diagnosis. So I think the last thing you need to deal with is um, being the own, your own coordinator of your own care, which is actually quite a lot of administrative labour and it's calling people up and it's working between systems. So I'm discovering the differences between the states at the moment. Um, and the best partnership that I've experienced is when I have a clinician who's willing to do that with me and even do that for me. And it can just be making the calls and just explaining who each person in the team is, that that can really empower me um, through the whole process. Look, just finally, you have four parents in the sense that your original parents have split and now married. So you've had the experience of being with the doctor with four adults in the room. What's your message uh, to any clinicians watching this about what to do in that situation? Yeah, I was, I was quite young when I was first diagnosed and with a blended family and four parents. Um, that's a crowded room already, let alone if there's any medical students who want to listen in. Um, but I really needed all four of those people involved to help me make treatment decisions. So um, I really appreciated when, if my parents asked a question, that the clinician would answer to me and not look over my head at my parents, but make direct eye contact with me, which it sounds like such a simple thing um, but really what it is, is respecting that uh, I am the most important person in that very crowded room. So I think that was such a reassuring thing and, and essential to partnership for me. Thanks so much, Shona. Let's welcome now Dr. Ben Bravery, <coughs> a, a cancer survivor and a medical doctor. And you wrote your book, The Patient Doctor, uh, about your cancer, but also about your decision to become a doctor to put the heart back into healthcare. So you've set yourself a decent goal. <laughs> when you look at the charter, from the point of view of both a patient mm. and a doctor, what's its value to you in a nutshell? I think it's an extraordinary document. It's, a, it's an attempt to kind of explicitly lay down what's going to be the most important aspect of this experience for a patient. Like Shona was saying, I, I think one of your questions was about 
Why did it need to be written down? And I think I come back to that as a patient turned doctor because the hospital is as this weird vacuum where you enter from normal life, where you have email and two-way communication and feedback systems, and you know where people are and you know what things you've ordered are when they're coming, you enter this world that is not yours. It's built for other people. It's built for doctors and nurses, and it can feel very strange. And it's nice to have this reassurance that despite that strangeness, despite the foreign nature of that world, you're still a person. And I love how the charter makes it clear that the healthcare rights are just human rights. Nothing's changed now that you're inside these four walls. You're entitled to the kind of quality of care that, you know, that we expect. Your book, you convey very clearly just how busy and powerless a junior doctor can feel, a trainee doctor and then a junior doctor. How do you think your colleagues will respond to the encouragement to put this up on the wall and hand it out on admission and, you know? I think that would be, that would have mixed impacts, honestly, to be very frank with you. I'm still a junior doctor. We're junior for somewhere between 10 and 15 years. Um, so I'm still training and I still have all these demands. I, I would welcome it, right? I describe myself as a patient who became a doctor, as a cancer patient wearing a stethoscope. So I see everything through the patient lens, but a lot of my colleagues do not. Having this displayed and having this agreed upon and articulated between doctors and patients as the foundation of their relationship, I think would help a lot of doctors refocus on the things that are going to matter to the person before them, more than the results of a certain test or the provision of certain antibiotics, right? There's a lot to this that is outside that transactional nature. You know, it, it, it's put out, if you haven't seen this charter yet, it's put out with many different resources in different languages and uh, adapted to different communities and so on. But I'm thrilled that there's one A4 sheet, one page version, because there's a chance a doctor might read this. Would you agree? Absolutely. Because at least it's one page. Yeah, they like simple, straightforward information that's not going to take too much time. The charter is linked to the accreditation mm of hospitals and other services. So it's got a bit of grunt to it. Do you have any experience of, of accreditation and the charter? One of the services I worked for uh, last term was going through an accreditation process. It's a huge deal when services and hospitals are re-accredited. They spend months and months and months of planning and we had failed. And it was to do with medication reconciliation, which comes down to safety and access actually. And so they drew a line in the sand and they said, you guys need to sort this out or we're removing your ability to care for patients. It was a big deal. And it was essentially a patient safety issue. Well, thanks, Ben. And I'll come back to you at the end for a couple of your responses to what you're hearing from our patient and family. I'd like to welcome now Nadine El-Kaboot, a Muslim and Arabic community advocate and again, a youth advocate and also a cancer survivor. And your passion is culturally and spiritually sensitive and appropriate services. Let's go to this partnership uh, right in the charter. I think you have a particular comment to make about advanced care plans. Welcome. During my treatments, um, I received uh, serious treatments, you know, radiation, chemotherapy, and stem cell transplant. And at the time, um, you know, considering what the risks were and what could end up happening, advanced care plans weren't discussed with me. They weren't brought up as an option if, you know, something was to go wrong. What would your wishes, goals and requirements be? Um, so the language of the messaging seemed to be around 
when someone is on the path of dying rather than having everyone on the path. And to me, you're not too, um, you know, advanced care plans are not just for old people. They can, they're for everybody. So we tend to have this focus, it's if only if you're dying or if you're only an old person, when in actual fact, an advanced care plan is a process of communicating and documenting a person's future health care preferences. And that's applicable to everybody. You know, and it's not limited to when you're dying. It also factors in quality of life. And that was important to me. So I think particularly at that time as a young person, these approaches, um, engaging young people facilitates open and honest discussions about their wishes, fears and hopes, which I had hoped was um, catered for me at least then. Another one of the rights you really care about is respect, the rights around respect, particularly because of culture and faith. And again, the meaning of death and dying and links to culture and faith. Just speak to that in relation to this Charter of Rights. Yeah, we really need to understand the meaning of death and dying from the person's cultural and spiritual perspective because each culture has its own beliefs about the meaning of death and dying, what happens after death. So it's important to understand this in order to know how to approach conversations with anyone, no matter what culture they come from, no matter what their spiritual beliefs are. So when you take the time to understand this, as a patient, I'd feel heard, respected and valued and cared about. So and this, by by understanding and addressing the patient's values and needs, it can positively influence both healthcare experiences, but also future healthcare-seeking um, behaviours. In another of our episodes about giving feedback to improve healthcare, you've talked about uh, your period when you'd lost a lot of weight with cancer and you had so much trouble getting access to halal food and palatable halal food, and and also. Uh, being sent a male spiritual advisor and not consulted about your preference for a female advisor. So I alert our people who are following this series to that other episode. Uh, but communication for people who aren't born in Australia as you are, for people from your community in southwest Sydney who do not have English as a, as a first language, tell us about your thoughts on the rights of communication and access. Yeah, so there's plenty of research out there that highlights the lack of access um, and underuse of interpreters, particularly around the migrant and refugee populations. So health service organisations have a duty of care to communicate effectively, um, in particular when obtaining informed consent. So communication is one of the seven um, rights on the charter. So working with interpreters is one strategy to ensure that this right is upheld. Failure to engage interpreters or inappropriate engagement of family members, which, you know, it happened to me as well and around any family members that I um, was around at the time, you know, or using bilingual staff to facilitate interpretation can lead to risks of harm. So it's quite important to involve people who can speak the language um, and communicate effectively to the patient. Is that a topic you hear discussed in your community in South West Sydney? You know, this use of uh, bilingual staff 
uh, and uh, particularly bilingual staff because you lose all your privacy is one of the rights as well. Yeah, correct. And that's one of the things that also you experience as a young person. You, there's some things that I would have preferred were discussed with me immediately as opposed to involving my parents or, you know, translating to them what they were saying. So that was quite important. And I found the same issues occurred when um, my grandparents were within the, uh, uh, you know, during their end of life treatments as well and what was occurring between them and the the, the breach of privacy. I know it wasn't intended and it was well-meaning, but again, that wasn't taken into consideration. Nadine, I just want to mention that you first got involved with the Charter uh, because it was given to you on admission to hospital and it encouraged you to make your first a very successful feedback letter about food and we discussed that in a, another one of our episodes on giving feedback but I want to mention you're involved with Eye Care Plan at Macquarie University which is looking at end of life and it, it, with the Arabic uh, CALD project at the University of Technology in Sydney that's particularly about clinical trial participation so just one last word on using this charter to improve access for multicultural communities to clinical trials. Why is that critical? Because they're an underserved community and the health literacy, literacy is quite low. So if we want to improve outcomes of this population group, then we need to have their involvement. We can't have discussions and research without them being involved in participating. We need to consult the community. We need to ask them, you know, what are the barriers? What are the enablers? How can we improve participation within the community and also outside the community and keep that network going. It's quite important. Look, thank you so much. Uh, a welcome now to Christy Afar, uh, a family member and uh, a big supporter of her late husband, a Pacific Islander, Lay, and also his parents in their health care. And you're involved in a community advisory panel with the Gastrointestinal Cancer Clinical Trials Group that's all about trying to improve multicultural participation. It's, it's so welcome to our series. And we've just heard from Nadine about cultural issues and that was a big factor in your support for your husband and also for his parents, wasn't it? Just talk yeah. a little bit about some of the cultural issues that arose for you and how the charter was so thrilling when you finally saw it. Yeah, so I actually hadn't seen the charter until recently and um, the three family members that I was advocating for have since passed away. Um, but I was really excited because this kind of framework would have really benefited us at the time and given me, I guess, a bit more um, confidence to sort of drive questions and, and sort of find a balance between the information we were receiving and then translating that into how can this fit within our family. Um, One of your big issues isn't was a fear of appearing to be disrespectful. Was that a powerful yeah. thing for you? Yep, it's particularly with Lay's parents. Um, their sort of outlook, I suppose, is like they're the doctors, we don't question them out of a respect thing. But, you know, as we were going along and as things were happening, it was more um, asking questions, not just because it was trying to interpretate, sorry, interpret to English, but then also once it was in English, then explaining what that actually meant because, you know, learning statistics, you sort of like, okay, I've got this information now, what do I do with it? Um, and sort of learning how to break that down and communicate and 
obviously being in a Pacific Island family, um, everyone's involved and it's a big group. And so everyone's sort of, yeah, decision-making is very much a shared um, thing, I suppose. And in the Charter, they're very clear that patients have the right to say who should be present for discussion. So again, that would have reassured you that it's all all right to, to have a group. Yeah. I think, too, you found being a supporter for Lay and then for his parents, you described as a full-time job. You even had to take time off work, and, and you have young children as well. Explain yeah. why it was like a full-time job. So, yeah, I ended up um, resigning from my position as soon as Lay was diagnosed, purely because he had complications straight off the bat with his first line of treatment. Um, and it really... Being pancreatic cancer, it's quite aggressive. We didn't really have many treatment options, to be honest. So I dove into the world of clinical trials and um, that in itself, um, finding trials that are available, um, knowing what questions to ask, knowing risks, how that's going to fit with quality of life, culturally integrating um, natural therapies, which is a huge part of um, Lay's culture as well. And as, as his family, it was a big thing. Um yeah, so just driving that alone on top of weekly oncology appointments, on top of testing, scans, raising two young boys at the same time, there was nowhere um, for us to fit in work, to be honest. It was literally a full-time job. When uh, Lay wanted to come home, effectively to receive his palliative care, to, to die at home, that wasn't an easy transition, was it? Can you tell us no. the challenges you faced and how... Perhaps the Charter may have given you a bit more confidence to push. For the most part, we were really blessed with um, an amazing medical team, but there were a few pushbacks um, from some of the staff in palliative care. Particularly, it was COVID, so a lot of people can't come into the wards and things like that, and being a big family, that was huge for us. And Lay obviously um, had wishes to pass at home. Making that transition possible was really difficult to navigate trying to come in for training to do the palliative um, care takeover to then be able to transition at home. Um, this charter would have been, um, I guess, again, coming back to giving us the confidence. Um, I was very used to asking questions and advocating, but then also when issues do sort of come up and you don't always see eye to eye, really working in collaboration with your medical team to make a plan that's not just this is the process, but it's more patient-led and specific to that person, this is where I think the charter would have been so helpful for me to understand it's not being disrespectful. It's, you know, when it comes to life and death, it does become purely about the patient um, at that point in time and their comfort. And, um, yeah, I guess, yeah, a lot more confidence around that. But we were really lucky in having the journey, I suppose, of that lead up to transitioning at home and transitioning to home palliative care that I was able to ask those questions and receive that training. And But, yeah, it would have been a lot more, I guess, seamless had we had the charter to refer to. Well, Christy, I just want to uh, applaud you for your ongoing role as a community representative. You're now a working woman raising uh, your and Lay's son. So it's just we're just so grateful that you've participated in this series and uh, the other work that you're doing. So I just wanted to say thank you because it's so great. Uh, look, if I could come back to Shona, we only have a few moments left, but Shona Edwards, uh, 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 in the trenches of healthcare right now, 
For young people watching this, listening to this, what's your message to them about the Charter? You know, how do you engage with documents like this? Uh, what would be your message? Well, I think anybody listening or watching, I think we all have a sense of that gut feeling you have of what is right and wrong. And I think we all have that. We know that that exists within us, but really what the Charter does is it gives us a language to put those feelings into words, um, which can help us identify what's happening to us, but then to actually take action. I think that's the the key message for me with this charter is how do we take that inner sense of knowing and turn it into action? Language, that's such a good point. And I should let our audience know you're a disability advocate now because your first encounter with cancer treatment led you to have mobility disabilities. Uh, so disability has become part of your life really because of treatment. It, that's it, isn't it? It absolutely is. And there's a whole language associated with disability too that I didn't have anyone to ease me into. So I think language is so essential because it gives you access to community. Look, uh, I'll come finally to you, Ben, the, the doctor patient. Are you trying to walk this line? <laughs> what are you feeling as you listen to these oh. patients and family? It takes me back to my own illness experience, and, <clears throat> but also the daily frustration I have now as a doctor. I think I can I concur with everything that everyone has said, and I think to me the charter is power. It, we Being sick is an inherently powerless state. Mm-hmm then you have to interact with a system where you don't understand as much as the person in front of you and you don't have the status of the person in front of you. This is, it goes some way to equalising that relationship, to balancing it out. And, you know, I I want to acknowledge in our last moment the role of family Mm. because I know your partner, now your wife, was utterly crucial Mm. Uh, and uh, uh, Christy, obviously, a huge role. My own partner and I had cancer. So what's our message to family who are tuning in. Absolutely. The charter isn't just for the patient, it's for everybody around the patient. Well, thanks so, so much. It's great to have a clinician. Well, we do some deaf sign clapping to applaud everyone. And I I really want to thank you to all our guests and everyone who's joined us. For more information and resources about the Australian Charter of Healthcare Rights, go to the Health Consumers New South Wales website, www.hcnnsw.org.au. And you'll also see lots of information about our guests and other resources. I'm Julia McCrossan. See you in the next episode.